Well, um, you may know that we are working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, we're week three into that series. And so open, open your, keep your Bibles open on page 1081. Um, one of my favorite TV shows, reality TV shows, is a show called Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen it? Uh, if you haven't seen it, what they do is they take CEOs of big companies and they get them doing the entry-level jobs. They go undercover. Uh, they pretend that no one knows them. So that, uh, I think once they got the CEO of Domino's Pizza to go out on the mopeds delivering pizzas, they got the boss of IGA stacking shelves, and they got the head of Boost Juice in the Westfields juicing the juice. It's great. If you haven't seen it, you haven't lived. Um, I have got... I have got an idea to take that show to the next level. You heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Undercover Boss, World Leaders Edition. It'll be genius. I reckon it'll catch on. We'll sell loads of advertising to it. Uh, So what we do in uh, uh, Undercover Boss, World Leaders, is that we take a world leader uh, week in, week out, and we send them back to the floor. So episode one, we'll get... Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, and we'll have him at cleaning hospitals, I think. Uh, Week two, we might get Queen Elizabeth, and we'll get her serving food to prisoners in Her Majesty's prison. And then for the finale, we'll get President Donald Trump. What do you reckon we could get him doing? I don't know. um, a, A hygienist for Mexican immigrants. How about that? Cleaning the teeth of Mexican immigrants. I'd watch it, would you? I reckon you'd watch it. I reckon it would catch on. Now, if you can appreciate the scandal and the shock of Her Majesty serving bangers and mash to inmates, you, can, you get somewhere close to how the Apostle Paul wants us to appreciate the shock of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Just uh, ha- open your Bibles at chapter 2. Uh, verse 6 of Philippians. Paul says this, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, Paul is saying that the cross is the ultimate act of humility. One massive return to the factory floor. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible that Jesus would do that. Just think about it. Just mull on it for a minute. That Jesus, the King of glory, uh, the Son of God, steps, steps down from his heavenly throne and becomes a slave. There's a song that goes, Hands that flung stars into space, to cruel nails, surrendered. Uh, Paul is saying that Jesus, the CEO of the whole world, comes down and does the dirtiest job you could ever imagine, the dirtiest job in the house. He comes down from heaven, is born in a stable, faces an unjust trial, is rejected by his mates, endures Roman torture, and then endures the shame of a Roman cross. To die on a cross was the height of shame. 
probably the, the equivalent of being uh, prosecuted in, and imprisoned as a paedophile or something uh, equally as shameful as that. And he does that. He steps off the CEO chair into history, into our world to make forgiveness of sins, to make friendship with God and the hope of eternal life instead of the certainty of hell, to make those things possible for you and me. That is extraordinary, isn't it? So before we get stuck into this chapter, I want to ask you, do you know that forgiveness? Do you know friendship with God? Do you know the hope of heaven? Because it is available today. It's only a prayer away. It is extraordinary that God would do so much that Jesus would step down. See, Trump scrubbing a Mexican's teeth has got nothing on what Jesus has done on the cross. But I wonder whether you notice this song in the middle of uh, Philippians goes further than that. It's not only an act of humility... Uh, Paul is telling us that the cross is also the pathway to a great victory. So have a look with me at verse 9. He says, for this reason, because of the cross, because he stepped down from heaven, because he stepped off the CEO's seat, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul gets really excited. He's penned this song in the middle of the letter so that the Philippians would get really excited, so that we would get uh, really excited. And what he gets excited about is that because of what happened on the cross, Jesus returns to the CEO chair as the boss. The king of glory is reinstated because of the cross. And he is more powerful than a hundred trumps. Infinitely more powerful than a thousand Turnbulls. Jesus is CEO of the whole world. And he sits in the big boss chair. And he rules now. Whether you believe him or not, the Bible says that Jesus rules now. You notice what will happen in the future. One day every knee will bow to him. Every tongue confess, everyone you know now, everyone who has ever lived, everyone who will ever live, will know Jesus as the boss. And they'll know him as the boss, either as an enemy going to hell, or as his friend, as his follower, as they follow follow him into his kingdom, into eternal life. It's an extraordinary thing that Paul says. But that is the gospel. Paul is talking about a Roman execution of a first century carpenter. But yet the Bible paints it as the best news in the world that Jesus comes down from the CEO chair and returns back up to rule and to reign. Now he gets so excited about it. Uh, If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you will have heard the Apostle Paul bang on about the gospel. This is the gospel, the good news that Jesus reigns, the victory that Jesus has over death for himself and on our behalf for anyone who would follow him. The gospel, uh, Paul says, that has made the Philippians 
partners. If you're a Christian here today, this is the gospel that has made you and me partners with God, with each other. And Paul says it's such good news that it is worth suffering for. We heard that last week. Paul says it may land you in jail. It may mean that you will die for Jesus. But the gospel is such good news. And Jesus' victory is so accomplished that it will certainly land you in heaven. And that is an amazing hope. Well, today our our passage tells us that this gospel should infect every area of our lives. If you're a Christian here today, the gospel should infect every area of our lives. Just look with me at chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, Paul says just one thing. Now, when gospel writers say just one thing, we need to pay attention. He's saying, pay attention, listen up, just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've named our series after this verse, A Life Worthy of the Gospel. But we've actually got it wrong. uh, Because this uh, verse, verse 27, doesn't actually quite articulate Uh, uh, translate and articulate the verse correctly. Uh, Our letter's originally written in Greek, and the phrase literally says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Citizen yourself worthy of the gospel. What Paul is saying, he's saying that if you're a Christian here today, then let the gospel shape your identity. Let the gospel shape your purpose in life, your speech, your ambition, your affections, everything that you are, everything that God has made you. Let the gospel soak, uh, soak itself around you. Let it affect every inch of your life. Now that's a challenge, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you're human, uh, you've got a heartbeat, then that is a challenge. You will know what a tall order that is. Our city doesn't care about Jesus. Our world says that the gospel is for nutters and fanatics. And we get sucked into that way of thinking, don't we? We get embarrassed of the gospel. We don't, we can't compartmentalize the gospel. But Paul says that your citizenship should show itself in the major areas of your life. I want to, I think he tackles two areas tonight, and we're going to hit two areas just briefly. So firstly, uh, Paul says, be gospel citizens in the world. Be gospel citizens in the world. Now, the Philippians that Paul is writing to were Roman citizens, and to be a Roman citizen in the first century was a big deal. It was the most, if you like, the most coveted uh, passport stamp on the planet. And yet Paul says here in verse 27 uh, that despite having the Roman passport stamp in your passport, uh, the passport that should shape you is the one that is printed in Jesus' blood. It's a passport that every single follower of Jesus has. And he says that it should affect you firstly by being united. It should affect you by being united in the world. End of verse 27. He says, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, contending side by side 
for the faith that comes from the gospel. Literally, uh, Paul says you're to be one soul. You know that phrase, soulmates? You are to be a one soul. If you like this pocket of gospel unity in the middle of a hostile world, in the middle of Roman territory. I was trying to think of an illustration to illustrate Christians living in the world as gospel citizens. And I immediately went to Bondi and the Poms living in Bondi, speaking Pommy, eating eating, uh, Pommy, being Pommy. They're a bunch of weirdos, those guys. Uh, But Paul doesn't, that doesn't quite do it. uh, Because the unity that Paul is talking about is more like the English rugby scrum. When they're playing Australia, tight, united, focused on a single goal. Uh, You see also that they're not only to be united, they're to stand firm in hostile territory. Look at uh, verse 28 with me. He says, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Paul says that it will be tough living in the world. And you may know that. But as gospel citizens, you're to live united, and stand firm. Paul uses, again, uses an image that would have rung so true for his original readers. It's the image of a Roman shield wall. If we've got a picture, here you go. A picture of this Roman shield wall. So that phrase, side by side, in verse 28, uh, that literally is what it means. Those are the connotations that they would have heard as they would have heard the phrase side by side. They are to be strong, tight, united, and steadfast. Uh, they had these shield walls where they locked their shields in side by side, around the front, around the sides, over the top, and they walked into battle and destroyed everyone else, resisted all attacks. And that's what Paul says. We are to be like in the world as gospel citizens living in Sydney. And what's more is that they are to be united around a single objective. Uh, Verse 27, the objective is this, the goal is this, to produce faith that comes from the gospel. Paul is saying that uh, your objective is to see people put their faith in King Jesus. He sits on his throne. And you're working so that people would hear the gospel and come to trust Jesus as their king, working hard to see people saved. Now, that's important to remember, isn't it? Because we can so easily uh, get caught up in being church, being nice to each other, uh, being this club. We can get focused on loving uh, church more than we love the gospel. We can get to the point where we uh, love being church, but we can forget about the gospel. We can forget about what God has given us to do in the world. There are so many churches around the place that are like that, more concerned about church than people becoming Christian and being saved. So let me ask you, uh, as you uh, think about your life, how can you be a force for the gospel What opportunities have you got? What opportunities has God given you? What people has God given you to scheme and to plot so that we can get the gospel out there? What can you do to proclaim the news that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and hell? What can you do? When I first moved to London, I reluctantly, um, this was 
many, many moons ago, probably 15 years ago now. I, I moved to London. I reluctantly got dragged along to a prayer meeting by some Christians who worked in the same area as me in the West End of London. And uh, I kept getting, dragged, uh, get, kept getting dragged along to this prayer meeting. There was about 10 of us. And gradually, um, gradually this prayer meeting turned into a one-off gospel talk at Christmas. And that one-off gospel talk uh, turned into a weekly talk. And that weekly talk turned into two weekly talks. And the two weekly talks turned into a massive Sunday church. And year on year, people heard the gospel and people kept getting saved. I say that not uh, to boast in anything that I am. I was always late. I was always skiving the prayer meeting. Uh, um, I say that to demonstrate how partnership in the gospel works, to be focused on the proclamation of the gospel and dragging each other along, scheming so that people would be saved and come to know Jesus. There's a, I see that happening here. Uh, we've got Everyday English. Anyone involved in Everyday English here? You should be. Your gospel partners. Uh, I love how God, Everyday English was born out of a woman over at Blues Point Road scheming and plotting and getting some mates around and saying, we want to share the gospel with the Japanese women that are turning up on our doorstep here at church. How can you plot and scheme? How can you be united? How can you do that in the city, in your office, scheming with other Christians? You are to be a gospel unit. We are to be a gospel unit, steadfast, united together to see souls saved by the news of Jesus. We're to be gospel citizens in the world. Well, secondly, we're also to be gospel citizens in the world by being gospel citizens in the church. Uh, You may have heard the the phrase in in business that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, In verses um, 1 to 11 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul's purpose is to invoke a culture that promotes God's strategy for saving souls. To to, to foster a culture that uh, promotes the proclamation of the gospel. And uh, you might have noticed in verses 1 to 11 that just as the message and the mission is shaped by the gospel, so the culture of church is is to be shaped by the gospel. Have a look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, of Jesus' love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. Then verse 5, he says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Verse 2 is the positive. Verse 3 is the negative. He says, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Sadly, we will know uh, that negative all too well. You will have heard of churches, you will have been in churches where selfishness and conceit have destroyed that church. Uh, You will have seen letters written and uh, vicious AGMs. Thankfully, we didn't have that here. Uh, You would have Uh, You would know about committees with vendettas. You would have heard people say, how dare they? Selfish, conceited behavior that rips churches apart. You see, you can't take the gospel out into the world if the gospel doesn't hold the church together. And Paul knows that a bad culture 
destroys the work of the gospel. We'll get it in chapter 4 when he addresses two women called Euodia and Syntyche. Uh, They've been having a Barney and he puts them to right. But here he's laying down the foundations of the culture that is meant to support the gospel proclamation. Uh, Paul says that instead of of, um, a culture of selfishness, there is to be the culture of verse 3. He says, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Selfless, sacrificial, gospel-driven service of others. Now that is a beautiful thing to be part of, isn't it? Uh, This morning at Kids Church, and I expect they're doing it this afternoon, uh, the leaders were washing the kids' feet. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I was telling them off in the afternoon. Uh, but they were, they were demonstrating this by washing uh, the kids' feet. That is a beautiful thing uh, that we should be doing to each other. Treating the lowest of the low amongst us as the most important person in the building. That is a beautiful thing to do. But it's also a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Because we live in a city where the currency of our city is selfishness. Completely selfish. I wonder if you could imagine if somehow uh, we could get this culture that Paul is talking about and somehow infuse it into the water of Sydney. That selfishness is replaced by selflessness. Transform our city, wouldn't it? There'd be no more road rage. Business practices would be completely different. Uh, Public transport, you get a seat on public transport. Our city would be transformed. How much more then should our church be transformed as we know the living God, as we know the Jesus who has served us, who has humbled himself ultimately to win us back to God? That should transform us. It should transform our marriages. It should transform our homes. It should transform the way we parent. I'm on my kid's case at the minute, uh, losing, uh, losing my temper when I don't need to. Rather than treating my son better than myself. Trying to understand him, trying to serve him. The gospel should transform our relationships. It should transform our church. Selfless, sacrificial, purposeful love that is only made possible as we understand the gospel. When we are gripped by the selfless, sacrificial love that Jesus showed us first. We were nothing. We were the lowest of the low and Jesus served us. You see, the gospel is not only the model of humility, it is also the source of humility. Paul says, have the mind of Christ Jesus. And when we appreciate just how much Jesus did for us, just what went through his head as he came to earth, died on a cross, not uttering a word, to win us back to himself then we will grasp what it means to be humble. Not this false humility that you get around churches, oh, you have the last brownie, that kind of thing. But real selfless, sacrificial, humble service of each other. Friends, that is the team we're on. That is the jersey that we wear. And we should be showing each other selfless, sacrificial humility. And as we do that, we spur each other on, don't we, to to trust the gospel. 
So as a, a, you are a jerk and someone else treats you as though you haven't been a jerk, they show you the gospel. They show you what Jesus has done for you. They show you that he's come off the CEO chair and served you to win you back to himself. Now, if you're uh, feeling like you just don't have the energy, if you've just, just had a baby or you've, been, uh, you've had sleepless nights, you're just feeling like you've come to church and you just think, oh, he's now giving me be humble as a list of things, as a, as a thing to do. Uh, let me just encourage you, just to, don't think about what you've got to do. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Go home tonight and mull over and meditate on this song that Paul gets so excited about. Verses uh, 5 to 11 of chapter 2. Just read it tonight. Mull it over and then think, how should this shape who I am in the world? And who I am at 3.30 Church. There's a song uh, that uh, first helped me understand the meaning of these verses. I I hadn't appreciated that until we sang it this morning at ATM Church. I'm just going to finish with that and then we'll pray and then we'll sing. It goes like this. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. It's extraordinary news of the gospel, extraordinary news of what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you that Jesus humbled himself, that he stepped down from the throne of heaven, that he entered human history and took on the likeness of a man so that he might serve us so that he might save us, so that he might ransom us. We have done nothing to deserve that, Lord. And we pray that that would uh, shape everything that we are in the world and everything that we are as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.